Hi, and welcome to Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by HBC Heritage. I'm your host, David McGuffin. On this episode, we're continuing our journey into the history of Canada as seen through the prism of the Hudson's Bay Company as it turns 350 years old. And today we're heading into the Hudson's Bay Company vaults for a conversation with Amelia Fay, the curator of the HBC collection at the Manitoba Museum in Winnipeg. Along with its sister collection, the HBC Archives, it is a treasure trove of centuries worth of documents and artifacts. Canadian author and historian Peter C. Newman once described these collections as the greatest archive in the world outside the Vatican. So, with that in mind, over the next three episodes, Amelia and I are going to explore many of the fascinating aspects of these collections. And we're going to begin with the document that really is the beginning of all of this, a document Amelia correctly describes as both incredible and problematic, the Royal Charter. In it, on May 2nd in 1670, King Charles II granted the HBC lands covered by the massive watershed of the Hudson's Bay, a territory that would eventually be expanded to cover one-twelfth of the Earth's landmass, an area already populated for millennia by North America's indigenous population. But before getting into the contents of that document, Amelia began by describing what it looks like. It's pretty incredible, and the fact that it's it's in such beautiful condition, like it's 350 years old, and it's gorgeous. Um, so it's it's done on uh, vellum, so it's um, that's why it needs special climate control. So vellum being um, kind of the skin or part of an animal, um, with the ink right on it, and it's beautifully decorated on the first page. It's got that sort of beautiful calligraphy style writing. It's got a lot of decorations and sort of flourishes. Um, and that's kind of how a lot of documents of that time are. Even early post journals, some of the first intro pages have these beautiful kind of gorgeous writing and little designs and flourishes on them. Um, there's also part of the wax seal that still remains uh, on the document. So that's incredible too. It's So it's even if you're not so much interested in the contents of the document, just looking at it in itself is, is it's kind of a work of art, really. It's interesting too is that the way it's written, there's no breaks in paragraph or anything. So if you're trying to actually read it, um, your eyes get very tired. <laughs> and it's also, of course, written, it was written in 1670. So the English language was a bit different as well. So um, fortunately for us, uh, HBC Heritage Services has a transcription available on their website, um, and as well as it kind of breaks it down for you in a little more simpler language for today's audience. That is very helpful because there's a lot in it, isn't there? It, it basically outlines kind of the governance of the company, um, right down to, you know, how they're going to approach their business model, how they're going to report on business activities. Um, so it's not just about um, the Royal Charter and the land, which is a huge issue, especially now thinking about land rights here in Canada, what, what is now Canada today, um, but just the, the full level of detail uh, right down to, you know, the governor and the reporting structure and and even the rent ceremony and all these things, all these details are included in this in this one mm. charter. Tell me about the rent ceremony. The rent ceremony is kind of neat. Um, so they had had outlined that um, they would pay with, I believe it was two two beaver and two elk, um, but that would be paid to to the crown. 
Um, but of course, it only actually happened, I believe, three times in the history of the company. And that was when uh, Monarchs came and visited over here in Canada. So it's something that's outlined, but that never really happened that often at all. Seems like cheap rent too, ultimately. <laughs> yeah, 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 very much so. Especially back then, considering the, the abundance of these animals. I mean, that was kind of not very much. Yeah, so it, the Hudson's Bay Company isn't the name if you look at the charter. There's a somewhat more remarkable and wordy name. Can you tell us what that yeah. is? Yeah, the Governor and Company of Adventurers Trading into Hudson Bay. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a very lengthy name. It's kind of nice they shortened it. Otherwise, my title would be far too long. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's that's what they were called. And so the governor, the first governor, was Prince Rupert. So he's outlined in the document as well. Um, so the governor and company, all the other investors and partners in that company trading into Hudson Bay. And what were they given in this charter? It, it's pretty uh, remarkable. Uh, it lays out all of the, uh, so the territory, which they called Rupert's Land, which is all of the rivers uh, and waterways draining into Hudson Bay, which is roughly, I think, 3.9 million square kilometers of what is now Canada. Wow. So it's huge. Yeah, that's a lot of space. Do you think they knew what they were giving when they... No, I don't think they really... Because the Canada hadn't really been mapped at that point. So they knew, you know, Henry Hudson had been around. They knew the Hudson Bay. They knew kind of that area. But to the west of that, they really had no no idea. And, uh, and that sort of took shape as the company established themselves. And they started sending out uh, cartographers and explorers to sort of search the area. And, and that map got filled in. But I think at the time, uh, King Charles II really didn't know the full extent um, to the, the massive territory that he was granting. Amazing. And do you think any of the governors or any of the people involved in that document really had a clue of anything about the country they were laying claim to? No, because most of them, I don't think any of the initial yeah, investors or Prince Rupert, they weren't, they never came yeah. here. So this is all based on, you know, Radisson and de Grosseillet telling them. And, These are the uh, two French fur traders who... The two French fur traders. And of course, um, de Grosseillet was the one who made it on board Nonsuch to Skagenish, which is part of your first episode. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, largely those folks in England didn't really understand what, what exactly was being given in this document. Um, and of course, it's also kind of absurd that they were giving anything at all because this is clearly First Nations land and they'd been there for thousands, possibly tens of thousands of years. But this was this was yeah. pretty typical of European monarchs at that time. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's what makes this document, inter I say, interesting and problematic um, because it, it does follow the mindset at the time that was really shaped by two main kind of theories or schools of thought that largely came from the Pope, which were the doctrine of discovery um, and terra nullius. So these ideas that um, you could go to another land and if it wasn't discovered by another uh, colonial nation, you could claim it as your own. Um, and the idea terra nullius that, of course, uh, what they often said, heathens, if there were heathens uh, in that land, it, then it was land for the taking. So it was free land, empty land. Um, and so with those two principles in mind, the king probably didn't give it to second thought, you know, about granting this land because based on those ideas, he felt it was fully within his right. Um, and of course, that's what makes the document problematic because we know it really wasn't his land to give. Mm. And the idea of granting land like that to be administered by a corporation or a company, I mean, how unusual was that for the time or why was that the direction they chose? Uh, it definitely seems unusual. Um, I mean, lots of countries were sort of 
staking claim, but to, to grant it to essentially a company uh, seems a little bit odd, but it was definitely England's way of um, kind of exerting themselves. The, the French already had the Gulf of St. Lawrence uh, locked down, and so that sort of route for furs was already, you know, very well established. This was, I think, Britain saw their way um, to kind of getting a headway in on the fur trade. Um, so they saw it as both good for, for Crown and company. Wait, so going through it, I mean, what do you find most remarkable about it? Um, I guess I find twofold. Like one, I mentioned the, the condition it's in. I mean, you think about something that's 350 years old, like they the company preserved it so well for so, you know, centuries. Um, so the condition I find remarkable. I find I find the land issues really interesting too. Just especially in light of what's going on um, today in in Canada, there's lots of discussion about land rights, lots of discussion about um, kind of who has the right to to make claims to certain territories and regions when First Nations peoples have been here for, as you mentioned, tens of thousands of years. Um, so I find that angle of the document really interesting too. And particularly because, um, you know, it's now recognized that the way this document came about was wrong. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and the company admits that too, you know, this is, uh, this is not, a, you know, a wrongful part of the past, but it was something that, that happened. And then I think what makes it extra interesting for me is that subsequent document that happens uh, around 1870, the deed of surrender. So when Rupert's land is sold to what is now Canada, and again, that transaction takes place without any First Nations or Métis input. Um, and that was also problematic. So there's these two massive colonial documents. And so they, they've shaped what is Canada today. Not many people know about them or think about them, but they're, they're hugely important and they're all linked to this company. That was Amelia Fay, curator of the HBC collection housed at the Manitoba Museum. And that collection is having a birthday of its own. It was started 100 years ago this year to mark the 250th anniversary of the founding of the HBC. The charter itself is on loan from the HBC to the Manitoba Archives, also in Winnipeg. And as Amelia mentioned, you can learn a lot more about the charter and HBC history by visiting the website of our sponsor, HBC Heritage, at hbcheritage.ca. That's it for this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. We'll be back with Amelia next time to learn more about the iconic HBC point blanket, why moccasins are an important part of the collection, and items that point to the HBC's shift from the fur trade to becoming a retail giant. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating, tell your friends about us, and share these episodes on social media. So, until next time, when we explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, Inuit, it means that Inuit oral history is very strong. We flew over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160. Well, I'm a first for Canada.